That's not just the sound of that first sip of Morning Joe. It's the sound of someone shopping for a car on Carvana from the comfort of home. That's a good blend. It's time to take it easy, like answering some easy questions to get pre-qualified for a car in minutes. Talk about starting the morning right. Just like customizing your terms so your car fits your budget. Mm, mm, mm. Visit Carvana.com or download the app to experience car shopping the way it should be. Convenient. Comfortable. Ah. You are listening to the Next Best Picture podcast, and this is Dan Howitt's interview with the writer and director for Incredibles 2, Brad Bird. Hey everyone, it's Daniel Howitt, and today I'm joined by Brad Bird, the Oscar-winning director of Ratatouille, Mission Impossible Ghost Protocol, The Incredibles, and of course, this year's Incredibles 2. Thanks so much for talking with me today. Great to be here. First and foremost, congratulations on the massive success of Incredibles 2. How gratifying is it that after 14 years, you come back to this world and see that people still love these characters? Well, it's very gratifying. I mean, you know, you don't intend for this much time to elapse, but the fact that the audience was uh, not only there, but, you know, eager uh, was uh, really wonderful. Um, I really enjoyed making the first film, and so returning to those characters was was a blast. Well, yeah, so like you referenced, uh, people spoke about a sequel immediately after the first one came out. So uh, at what point did you start to crack the story and work on the sequel? What what was the moment where you, you start, had the idea for the sequel and you thought, now's the time to do it? Uh, well, uh, I had the, uh, the idea for the role switch between Bob and Helen, where Helen would get the assignment and Bob would be you know, need to be at home, uh, when we were publicizing the first film. And, um, I also had the unexploded bomb of Jack Jack of the fact that the audience knew that the Jack Jack had multiple powers, but the Incredibles did not. So those two things I had right away. And, uh, uh, it was the villain plot that kept, uh, eluding me. And, um, uh, I finally pitched, felt like I had something, you know, a few years ago and I pitched it and uh, Pixar went for it. We got a, you know, go uh, green light and a release date and all of that. And, and about three or four months in, I realized that plot was not going to serve the other parts of the, the film, the, the role switch and the Jack Jack, and that it, you know, I, I needed to change it. So, uh, you know, I kept working and shifting things around on the villain plot up until the very end um, because uh, I was committed to the other idea, and if that if the villain plot didn't play well with the other parts of the film, I had to uh, throw it overboard and, and, and start over. And it was not dissimilar from my experience on the first Incredibles film, where the villain that I came up to Pixar with, um, I ended up switching out for the villain that we wound up with, um, you know, just because I had a better idea. Um, so it was strangely, you know, in retrospect, like the first film in that the villain came last. Was it hard to kind of dive back into these characters after so much time once you, once you cracked the story? Um, not really. Um, they are fun to write. They, um, are, 
it seems like a very kind of commercial film because it's, uh, you know, uh, superheroes and their cartoons and their um, caricatured and all of that. But the films, uh, the Incredibles movies for me are, are strangely personal. There's a lot of the family that I grew up uh, uh, in with my sisters and my parents and, and the family that I have with my wife and sons um, in these movies. So they're strangely personal uh, movies. They just kind of look like very commercial movies. They're, the characters are really fun to write and it, it's uh, fun for me to switch from one voice to the other. And I enjoy the fact that um, the characters don't actually speak the same. They use different words and different sentence constructions and all of that. I've always admired that about filmmakers like the Coen brothers, that that they have uh, dialogue that is very specialized. And, and I try to do that in my own films. One thing you've talked about on Twitter is this not being a quote unquote kids film. You know, some parents have tweeted you complaints about harsh language or this and that. So why aren't you the biggest fan of the label kids movie? And, and how is this film something different to you? Well, um, I think that uh, it suggests that I aim these films at kids and, and I don't, I never have. I love the medium of animation, which is often assumed to be a, a kid's medium, which I've always thought was a really shallow and, and kind of dull and dim, not very smart, analysis or assumption uh um any more than that opera is only intended for you know ancient uh, music snobs you know mm. um and uh i think that you know i make these films the kind of film that i would want to see and i'm not a kid by a long stretch um kids are kids are welcome i'm not trying to exclude any kids but i'm i'm not aiming it toward uh, a group of children. I'm aiming it at people who um, enjoy animation and, 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 or people who don't, especially, and um, hopefully will win, win some uh, converts to our camp. You know, um, people forget that, that even cartoons like Bugs Bunny were not aimed at kids. They were aimed to uh, uh, make the audience that was seeing the latest Bogart or Betty Davis film last. And, um, you know, that's why they've lasted so well is that they were not aimed at kids. They became uh, um, aimed at kids in people's minds in the 50s and 60s when television needed uh, 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 programming and uh, studios had their cartoons and they knew that kids liked them. So that's sort of where it began being seen as a as a kid's um, medium. But they were intended for adult audiences, uh, which included kids, but were not aimed at kids. Right. Well, one way that this film isn't necessarily aimed at kids is, is the way that you're able to kind of weave these really timely themes into the project. You know, when I went to see the film opening weekend, my friend and I were walking into the theater and, and it just so happened that this was the same weekend that America was dealing with this crisis of, uh, of our government separating children at the border, putting them in cages. And, and so as we were walking into the theater, we were having this discussion about legality versus morality. Right. And, then we sat down and saw Incredibles 2, and we saw the exact same discussion play out on screen. So first of all, what drew you to these themes, and 
what made you want to explore such a, a timely subject? Well, um, the you know, like like anything, I don't go out with a, like a, a shopping list of things that people need to know and to improve their life or whatever. I'm I I think about the story first. And then if there are themes that arise out of the story, then that, then that's great. And, and it's a way to, to um, um, you know, I think storytelling in general is a way to uh, talk to people and keep their dukes down. Because I think people are averse to being lectured to. And um, if you can get them to drop their guard and just be an audience for a story, then I think you can take them in all kinds of unexpected places. Um, but I think that your attention as a storyteller should be on the characters and, and, and uh, rather than trying to wedge in any particular point of view that you might hold and let the, and let the, the, um, those things arise out of the story more organically. I think that it has to do with family. It has to do with, um, you know, uh, the same, uh, some of the same issues that were brought up in the first film is that, you know, what, uh, how far does one go in, in, you know, if your intentions are heroic, how can they go awry? And, and, you know, how does the law serve, uh, people versus, um, kind of tricking people, you know, and, uh, it's all stuff that, you know, will probably always be current, you know? Right. Right. Well, you say you start with characters and obviously one of the biggest breakout characters from the film, obviously from the first film, uh, is fan favorite Edna Mode, your own character. Uh, I don't think most directors of animated films can claim their own character as one of the more popular ones. So what's it like having people love not only your direction, your writing, but also your voice work and the character of Edna Mode? You know, it's a surprise and sort of a unintended delight. I mean, I wasn't even intending to do the voice on the first film, and I sort of got convinced to do it by uh, not only the actress that I approached to do it, but uh, um, also uh, a few uh, creative heads at Pixar when I was, my voice was in the temporary soundtrack, and and, uh, people seemed to think it worked. So I, I sort of was kind of confused at the beginning and it it remains confusing to me but in a nice way i used the voice to describe the character when i was trying to explain people you know what kind of person she was and i would fall into doing that voice in as a way of explaining her and then people kind of got used to that voice so uh anyway that's how it happened (laughs) that's awesome well, this was kind of your return to animation after something like 10 years. And in that time, you made two live action films, Mission Impossible, Ghost Protocol, and Tomorrowland. So what's it like returning to animation after that time? And uh, and what do you love about animation versus live action? What do you love about live action as opposed to animation? What are the, what are the pros and cons? Um, I love that animation, if you can get um, things the way you want them, um, it's really a, a pure um, sort of form of expression. It, uh, it um, uses uh, um, certain graphic things that, that you learn in drawing. Um, even when you're using computer graphics, there's a, a way of um, 
sort of caricaturing in a good way um, how people move and, and, and uh, what they feel like. So what you're animating is not reality, but the feeling of reality. And um, that can go into representing uh, a world that's not that different from our own rather than a fantasy world. Um, you know, there's a, a certain way that people move and the ways that babies move and a way that teenagers move that, that are very specific. And um, it becomes a really interesting assignment from an animator's point of view. And if you nail it, um, there's a delight to it that's hard to explain. Um, what I love about live action is uh, the spontaneity of it, the fact that you can get on a roll on the set um, and uh, just say, let's do another take and, and try that thing that, that, just, that you sort of improvised in the last take. Take it further. Let's go, you know, go. And, you know, the, uh, the pressure, too, of it is immediate. And um, um, it's different than animation in that way. Animation is not spontaneous. Um, if it's done well, it looks spontaneous, um, but it is a very studied uh, effort. Um, uh, and, uh, you know, it's very different from uh, live action. But, uh, you know, you're really doing the same thing. You still have to compose shots. You still have to time shots. Um, there's still momentum to shots. There's uh, physicality that is either good or bad for the character, and you have to you know, fight to get it right. Um, you're still dealing with color and music and sound and, and all of the things and, and trying to keep the characters clear and compelling to the audience. It's just that the means that you use is different. And each, each uh, live action and animation both have their strengths and weaknesses. And I love both of them. Well, just in the past few days, you started talking about what your next project might be. Uh, are there any details you are able to share with us about that project? Yeah, it's a it's a, a project that I've been wanting to make for a long time. In fact, it it predates uh, Iron Giant in terms of the idea that I've had and that I've wanted to pursue. Um, and uh, uh, I actually pitched it to a a movie studio a um, long time ago, and and uh, um, uh, you know, uh, so uh, it it uh, you know I'm returning to it. And, and I have a lot of changes to the story that I want to do. But it's a musical. It's a live-action musical. But it has probably 20 minutes or so of animation in it. But it's not the way uh, people are thinking about it. People are thinking about it like something like Mary Poppins. But it, it's not. It's, it's a little more modern than that um, in, in its style. Um, and uh, um, I think it'll be really exciting and really fun. Do you have any details on the on the style of animation that you hope to use in the project? Certainly, uh, a large uh, part of it will be hand drawn, uh, so uh, that's a little different than uh, the the CG that that I've been doing um, uh, uh, with Pixar. Right. Uh, is this a, a Disney project, or is it is it set up at another studio? Are you able to share um, that? No, it's a, it's actually it's actually at another studio. It was uh, originally at TriStar, which uh, makes it at Sony. Um, but you know, uh, uh, it's something that that I'm interested in making, and and um, uh, you know, we'll see if if uh, uh, people will uh, uh, when I flesh it out will. Um, uh, you know, have uh, the uh, uh, 
you know, gumption to do something new and different, because I think it is something like that. And it should be, uh, I mean, uh, to me, it, 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 it is exactly something that I would love to see in a movie theater. Do you hope to pair with Michael Giacchino again, especially if it's a, if it's a musical? Oh, absolutely. Yes, yes. We're, we're, we've been discussing it for a while. So it's a chance for us both to roll up our sleeves and, and uh, do something that, um, you know, scares us a little bit in a really good way. Well, that's exciting. Well, Incredibles 2 has been so well received. It's been getting awards nominations all over the place. And so, of course, we are uh, in the right in the middle of awards season right now. So, you know, you're no stranger to that. You're, you've been nominated for four Oscars, won two. And so what is awards season like for you? Is it fun? Is it exciting? Is it draining? What is it? All those things. Um at its best, it's, it's wonderful for you and your crew and the fact that um, you get to um, meet a lot of people that you admire um, because other films uh, get nominated that um, whose uh, makers you uh, are inspired by. Um, and the worst of it is that, you know, it, really the, 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 the most important thing is, is getting a chance to make movies and, and um, to see movies that's really the important thing. The, the awards are very subjective. And sometimes I, I agree with uh, people's choices. And sometimes I just slap my head at how wrong I think the, the choices are. And, and that's been true as long as I've been watching the award shows. And, and you know, I can, I can go way back and tell you how I, I, I love the sting, but I think American graffiti is, is the best movie of that year, you know, um, I mean, you know, over and over again, you know, even historically, how could Citizen Kane lose to how uh, how green was my valley? You know, um, uh, so uh, anyway, uh, uh, that's that's what makes it um, uh, simultaneously uh, really exciting and also uh, really kind of uh, crazy making is uh, is ultimate. I, you know, the, the important thing is, is making movies and, and, and getting them out there. And, and all, all of the rest is really just uh, icing on, on the cake. Well, what are some of your favorites of the year? Uh, what are films that, that you're loving right now, whether they're uh, awards contenders or not? Uh, yeah, I mean, I, I, I'm still catching up, um, but uh, I really loved Roma. I saw it first in Telluride, and, and it's so static. And, and um um, if you get a chance to see it with really good sound and, and projected well, it's, it's really kind of a hypnotizing experience. Uh, strangely, uh, too, uh, I, another film that I, I really enjoyed is a, a foreign film called Cold War, which uh, is also in black and white, and, and, um, uh, but uh, very cinematic and, and uh, um, really kind of strangely funny and sort of a dark way and um, smart. And uh, also, you know, anytime the, the Coen brothers decide to make a movie, I'm so there. And I really enjoyed Buster Scruggs, even though it's primarily meant for uh, streaming on Netflix. Um, it's, uh, it's, it's, you know, the, anytime the Coen brothers make a film, particularly when they make a Western, 
um, I'm just so there. All the Coen Brothers films, but there's some, they have a way with westerns that I think is is rare. Well, you talked about in award season meeting other filmmakers that inspire you, and so that that was kind of the next question I was going to ask is. Who or what is inspiring you, filling you up right now, especially as you're as you're diving into this next well, project? Well, living or living or dead. <laughs> I mean, I can <laughs> sure. go all over the place. Um, you know, I mean, filmmakers that are no longer with us are David Lean and and Orson Welles and and Howard Hawks and and uh, Billy Wilder and um, uh, filmmakers who are very much alive are Spielberg and. Coppola and, and Scorsese and, and uh, even uh, young filmmakers like Damien Chazelle, I think, are, are extremely talented. I think Greta Gerwig's movie, uh, Lady Bird, was a tremendous yeah. uh, piece of writing and direction. And, and, and uh, uh, you know, um, uh, Ryan Coogler and, uh, uh, you know... Um, so so many uh, uh, filmmakers right now, um, but uh, I tend to like the films that are more visual and um, not not as much uh, you know people talking and moving from room to room. It's, uh, I like movies that are that are almost uh, silent in their ability to tell a story with without sound, and then when you add great sound like uh, a soundtrack like Roma has, which is a very sophisticated soundtrack. It just becomes uh, something even deeper and more profound. Well, thanks so much for talking to me today. Uh, it's been awesome, and and uh, we wish you the best of luck throughout the rest of awards season with Incredibles 2 and also with this new musical that you're cooking up. Can't wait to see it. Oh, cool. Well, I can't wait to get it out there. Got a lot of fires to put out and problems to solve first, I'm sure. <laughs> thanks so much. All right. Thank you, Dan. Great to talk with you. Hey everyone, thank you so much for listening to Dan Howitt's interview with the writer and director of Incredibles 2, Brad Bird. You have been listening to the Next Best Picture podcast. You can subscribe to us on iTunes, SoundCloud, Google Play, Stitcher, TuneIn, Player FM, Acast, CastBox, and newly on Spotify. Be sure to leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. Let us know what you think of the show. We really appreciate your feedback, as well as your support, which you can give to us if you head on over to our Patreon page. For $1 minimum a month, you can get some exclusive podcast content from us. Thank you so much for listening. As always, we shall see you all next time. I'm Hannah. And I'm Audrey. We are a sister filmmaking duo and co-hosts of Sleepover Sleepover Cinema, Cinema. our show where we analyze the films that created the collective unconscious of the girls, gays, and theys of the late 90s and early 2000s. Princess Diaries, The Cheetah Girls, Aquamarine, Cinderella, the one starring Brandy. We haven't stopped thinking about these movies since we first saw them, and we want you to rewatch them and review them with us. Are these movies as bad as critics would have us believe? Do we even care if they are? We are always unpacking that very question on Sleepover Cinema. Check out Sleepover Cinema wherever you get your podcasts or at evergreenpodcasts.com. See you soon.